Welcome to the post Narc Life Podcast. It's time to leave behind the narcissist narrative and build an amazing life that you love. You got through, but you're not done. We're going to build your next level of wealth, create healthy relationships, find deep self-connection to expand your unique impact on this world, and leave behind a legacy of love. I'm your host, Laura, by the way. I've been there. I get it. And I've got you. Let's go build your post-narc life. Hi. Hello. Hello. How is everyone doing today? Welcome back to another episode. It is the beautiful month of March here in Houston. And today we're going to be talking about this concept that occurred to me as I've been working with my clients over the past few weeks, but really an entire lifetime of considering what this is without giving it a name. Today, we're going to talk about grief potential. What is grief potential? Well, it's just my name for what it feels like for your brain and your body to anticipate the grief that you're going to feel about someone that you care about, about losing someone that you care about, about dealing with something that's a major loss in your life that you don't want. Because of course we don't want, we don't want to experience loss. Our brains are wired to avoid experiencing loss as much as possible. It feels terrible. And the grief potential, what that means is the closer you are to someone, the more that you care about this person or this thing, the bigger the potential is going to be if and when you lose that person or that thing. That's kind of the way that you kind of can visualize it is like when you're talking about, let's go back to our eighth grade science class, right? Do you remember learning about kinetic energy versus potential energy? About how kinetic energy is when an object of a certain mass is in motion. And when that object is no longer moving, but based upon where it's at, it has a certain level of potential energy. So an object that's sitting on the floor is going to have less potential energy than an object sitting 10 feet in the air. Because when that object is pushed off the ledge, let's say it's sitting on a ledge or the top of the refrigerator or the top of a cliff, for example, and it's pushed off, that potential energy is much greater than the potential, than the potential energy of the object that's already on the floor. And then of course, when the object is moved, then it's now kinetic because it's moving now, but before it moves, it has potential energy. And I kind of remembered that when I was thinking about grief potential, because there's this grief energy that isn't being felt, but it has that energy of being potential. It's going to happen. It will eventually happen or it could happen, has that possibility. So when you're dealing with someone that you care about, especially someone you're extremely close to. So I work with so many people who have narcissists in their families, narcissist mom, narcissist sibling, narcissist husband, narcissist child, narcissist in-law or, you know, daughter-in-law or son-in-law. These people are very close and it's difficult to apply the skills, the coaching, the changes that you want to make to be in a healthy place in your life when there's so much grief potential. It can come, it can sometimes get in the way of the work that you're doing. So what this looks like is, let's say, for example, that you, you try to go set a boundary or you have the goal to set a boundary with your mom, for example. 
you know how your mom is going to respond. You know she's going to be upset. You know that she's not going to like it. And there's probably been some conversation over the years where she has used grief potential to manipulate you out of setting that boundary. How are you going to feel when I die that you have done this to me, that you have said this to me? How are you going to feel? Right? So they kind of can use this against you and they can use your potential grief, your grief potential to stop you from doing a thing that's actually very healthy for both of you. That's the tricky part about all this. Believing that it's actually the healthiest for both of you to set boundaries when the other person is not on board with that is not the easiest thing to do, but it's true. It's so much healthier for both people in a relationship to have boundaries. So I have a next door neighbor and they just put up a fence (laughs) and I'm not going to lie. At first I was like, oh, we're just going to put up a fence because, you know, we've been living here, I guess, what, five, six years and they never put up a fence. And I had this thought like, well, I guess they just don't want to see us. I had these weird thoughts. It was really funny, but I had those thoughts for about 5.5 seconds (laughs) because then I realized, oh my gosh, this is so much better. They have a fence now. They have a boundary. So now there is no weird sort of indistinction between where my property ends and theirs begins. And there's also, it's high, it's a high fence. So they can't really see into our yard and we can't see into theirs. And I don't know why they put up the fence. It probably has nothing to do with me. And it's very, (laughs) I think it's really funny that immediately my brain was like, for sure it has to do with me. It's like, my fault they put up the fence. And it's not true. Of course it isn't true. Even if it was true, even if it, if their brains were like, oh my gosh, we hate our neighbors. We need to put the fence up, right? That still has everything to do with them. And actually I didn't create this. I didn't cause that the fence went up. They made choices that the fence went up. Now, am I going to try to be the best neighbor I can? Of course. Am I perfect at it? No. Has my two-year-old wandered into their yard multiple times? Yes. Yes, she has. And we've like ran in there and scrambled and got her back out. But I bet that would help to have a boundary be like, all right, well, you can't go past the fence. Anyway, it's just fun to watch my brain kind of go into old habits and things like that. Little things like that happen because people like narcissist people, people who are emotionally immature, people who struggle and never ever were taught boundaries are going to perceive boundaries as a rejection. They're going to perceive boundaries as a form of abandonment. And I get it. I experienced that for like 0.5 seconds because that's how my brain has kind of been wired, I guess. And I've been doing a lot of work to heal it and manage it. But sometimes that's going to be the go-to. And if you're dealing with a person who is not aware of all of these things and does not have any desire to have healthy boundaries, this is going to be their reality. And they're going to live in that reality. And they're going to try to push that reality on you. And they're going to be like, how dare you do this to me and create all this hurt for me because you decided to set your limits. But it is healthier for both of you. Number one, of course, as you can probably imagine, it's healthy for you because you are aware of your limits. It feels so good to know where your limits are. That feels very grounding. It feels like you know yourself. I remember struggling for so many years. I just don't even know who I am. I remember thinking that a lot. And a lot of the time it was because I was so busy in fight or flight, not worrying about boundaries, not knowing my limits, just trying to get through the moment that I really didn't know who I was. We've talked about this before in other episodes, a boundary and also self-knowing is knowing what you like and what you don't like. It's knowing your limits, what you tolerate and what you don't tolerate. 
And so boundaries are a beautiful way to build a self-knowing. And that is so healthy for you. And it helps keep you protected. And, and I've said this before in other podcasts too, but I will say it till I'm blue in the face. Boundaries are about love. When you set a boundary, you are telling the person the truth about you. You cannot love in an environment of lies because not that there's no ability to feel love if you don't have the truth, but if you love someone based on the lie they've told you, are you actually loving that person? No, you're loving the version of that person that that person is showing you. So what you're loving isn't real. So it's really important when you set boundaries to really see that because then you're giving that person the opportunity to love you for who they act, you actually are. And they're not going to sometimes. Sometimes they will and it's amazing. But sometimes they won't. Sometimes they'll be super offended. They'll be like, who is this? I don't know who this is. This doesn't serve me. I don't want to love this version of you. But let me tell you, for years and years of my life, I let the people I was close to growing up love a fake version of me. And I thought that was best. Let me tell you, it's not. Because one day you realize they don't know me at all. They don't love me because they don't love the real me. They love this facade that I've created that isn't actually me. And that is a terrible realization, y'all. Not a fun realization to have about the people closest to you. So it's the healthiest thing for you to do to set appropriate boundaries, knowing your limits. You can express those limits or you don't have to express those limits. Sometimes you just live your boundaries. What that looks like is if you don't tolerate yelling, for example, you don't have to say, listen, I would love to have this conversation, but because there's yelling... I can't continue it. So let's pick back up when there's no yelling. You could say that. And I encourage you to say that. It's a great thing to say. Communicate your boundaries. It's perfect. But you don't have to. It's not your job to communicate your boundaries so that they stop. It's your job to protect you, whatever that looks like. That's what boundaries are for. It's about self-protection. This is a podcast that was supposed to be about grief potential. And it's turning into a podcast about boundaries. But it's just so, so, so important because I I work with my clients on this over and over and over again. And I work with myself on this over and over again. This is not easy stuff. When you've lived 30, 40 plus years with no boundaries or a very skewed version of what boundaries is, it's going to be tricky. All right. You don't have to say the boundary. You could just decide, I don't tolerate yelling. I'm going to, I'm going to go. I'm going to head out. I'm going to protect myself from the yelling, whatever that looks like for you. Maybe you hang up the phone. Maybe you walk out. Maybe you turn around. Maybe you shut the door. I don't know what that looks like, but you can decide what that looks like for you. That will create the most amount of safety for you. And you don't have to do it with a lot of bitterness and anger. This is not about punishment. It's not about an ultimatum. It's, it's just saying, whew, I am a person and I respect myself and I don't tolerate people yelling at me. I just don't, there's no need to tolerate that. One of the things I ask my clients regularly is, would you force your daughter to be yelled at right now? Would you keep her there? Would you say, no, no, you got to stay. They're going to stay yelling at you. You got to stay. You can't leave. You got to take it. And all of my clients say, no, they're like, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't force her to stay and, and, and be yelled at by some strange person right? Like say some homeless person or a strange person on the street came up to your daughter and started screaming at her. Would you be like, well, you better stay because you don't want to hurt that person's feelings. No, you would immediately yank her out of the situation. 
you'd be like, whoa, 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 come with me. You're not screaming at my daughter. What's happening? Who are you? I'm out of here. Bye-bye. Right? So why would you deny the same self-respect for yourself? Why would you deny that? Why would you tolerate being yelled at when you wouldn't let your daughter being yelled at? It's interesting to think about. You don't have to tolerate it. And you can love that person so much. You can be like, ooh, I do want to have this conversation, but it's starting to get heated for both of us. And I don't think we can have a productive conversation when we're yelling. So let's, let's get back to it in a couple of hours or in a couple of days. And you don't have to wait for their consent. <laughs> I don't, okay, let's not use the word consent. We, you don't have to wait for their permission for you to end that conversation. Because it takes two people to have a conversation, right? And when you have withdrawn your consent about having this conversation, you don't have to wait for their permission for you to consent to this conversation. So that's a better use of the word consent. Because <laughs> you are the one consenting to the conversation. And they've consented to the conversation for themselves, right? But they don't have the authority to force you to be in the conversation, right? You don't need to wait for their permission to leave. Okay, hopefully that's clear. Those, that's my little mini episode within an episode on boundaries. <laughs> if you have more questions, let me know. Laura at bythewaycoaching.com. Email me. Okay, so we're back to grief potential. It is a tool of the narcissist to get you into a state of fight or flight. Now, this is also something that I'm going to say over and over again until we're blue in the face because fight or flight is the thing that makes it possible for all of these narcissistic tendencies and, and boundary violations and anything that's going on that's unhealthy. That is one of the things that makes that environment possible. When you are in, our, when you are in, in, a, in a state of fight or flight, you are e easily manipulated. You make decisions that you wouldn't normally make. And if you're like me, you quickly self-abandon in order to survive. And about probably a bunch of other things, but those three main things are really what is getting us into trouble when we are confronting the narcissist in our life or a potentially emotionally dangerous situation. We get into our fight or flight response and as a result, a bunch of other things that we don't want can happen. So grief potential is one of the tools that can create a fight or flight response in your body because you are a human being who loves people. <laughs> You don't want to feel grief. You don't want to lose the things that you love in your life. And so when your brain is confronted with that possibility, that feels terrible and that knocks you into fight or flight. The imagination, a lot of the times our brains are kind of wired to be in a state of imagination of the worst case scenario. This of course has helped you to survive, helped the human species to survive for millennia. However, it creates a lot of emotional disruption in your body when your brain goes to the worst case scenario place about the people that you love because there's a lot of grief that your brain wants you to feel ahead of time because it believes that it's somehow going to protect you from future grief if you can imagine it ahead of time. And it's just not true. Let me tell you. Okay. So this month will be two years since my mom decided to end her life. Two years. Can you believe that? I can't believe it's been two years. It, um, it still feels like yesterday. It really does. And for me, uh, there's so much I can say about this, but 
I definitely experienced this kind of grief potential before she passed multiple times. My brain went to those places of what is it going to feel like when she dies? What is my life going to be like? It's going to feel awful. And of course I never wanted this to happen. And it's one of those things that I really, it's sort of a fascinating thing to, to go through, right? So the potential grief feels very, very different than the, I guess you would call it the kinetic grief <laughs> using the analogy of the potential energy and kinetic energy. The kinetic grief feels way different than what the potential grief would try to have you imagine. It's really interesting. The kinetic grief obviously lasts way longer. The kinetic grief feels much worse in some ways and much better in other ways than the potential grief, if that makes any sense. Let me see if I can explain it. So the moment I found out my mom died, it was almost like shock waves. And I went in, I plunged into a lot of grief immediately. And then there were moments when I couldn't feel the grief at all. It was really strange. As my brain was trying to wrap itself around this new reality, there were moments when I didn't think that that was reality. It was sort of like ups and downs and waves. It was sort of like, like really understanding it and then not understanding it at all. And then really understanding it as we moved through the process of the funeral, which now I really understand why we do funerals as humans. The funeral never benefits the per person who's passed on. The funeral benefits us. And it's not fun to go to a funeral. It's terrible. But especially for those close to that person, it is a, a space that's carved out for your brain to intentionally grieve this person because without the funeral or without kind of that like understanding right in front of your face that you're dealing with death and you're dealing with the loss of a very important person in your life, your brain kind of like goes in and out of it. It, it doesn't really want to face it. It's trying to live its normal life. It's trying to experience what it knows to be true, like moving forward with life, which is not a bad thing, obviously. But if you haven't allowed your body to fully grieve, it could come up in other ways and create problems. And so, so the funeral was a great opportunity for me to really keep my my brain in the grief space as it can appropriately pass through it. I read a really amazing story the other day about a woman who lost her son. I think he was, he was special needs. I don't remember which particular disease he had, but it was the kind of special needs situation where the mom had to kind of always be around him with him, managing him, managing his movements, everything. And I think he lived to be about six or seven years old. He was a lot older. Maybe he was four or five. I don't remember. But basically when he eventually passed from his disease, she was so heartbroken and so full of grief that she needed to stay with his body for days and it was really interesting to read. And she was talking about how like, it's really weird to write this. It's really strange that I'm writing this right now, but this is what my body, my brain, what I needed to be able to fully say goodbye to my son. And so she would go to the morgue, uh, twice a day and be with her son for an hour or so stroke his hair, like see his body, see that he's truly gone. And she did this for at least, I think it was like a week or a little less than a week. 
And her husband, obviously this was not his process of grieving. That's not something he was wanting to do, but he respected it and, and he let her do what she needed to do to fully say goodbye. And then she said at the very end, she's like, I experienced this amazing thing where my, my, I could let go. I could finally let go. I was able to be with his body and, and see his beautiful face and stroke his hair and be with him until it was time until I could naturally release him. I thought that was really beautiful. And I don't mean to say that that's what we all have to do and everybody should be doing that particular thing. No, I think everyone, we all have our own grief process. So for example, when I was at my mother's funeral, I, I wasn't crying the whole time. I definitely cried all the way through the eulogy part that I did not prepare for because I like literally could not prepare for the eulogy. I could not, I wasn't in charge of the whole eulogy. Thankfully my brother was in charge of that. He's, he's amazing. But I was given a moment to talk about mom for a minute, which I'm really grateful I had that moment. But of course, even though I was invited to maybe prepare a few words, there was no way I could. It was, (laughs) that was not possible (laughs) there anyway. But I said what I said. I don't even remember what I said. But I was crying through all of that and just sitting there, seeing the casket, watching the casket be loaded into the hearse, driving behind the hearse, watching the hearse moving towards the grave site, going to the grave site, seeing the, the casket next to the grave that's been dug. And then all of us around it and, and talking about mom and remembering those moments and connecting as a family. And then finally, the time came for the casket to be lowered into the ground and everyone started leaving and I was, I couldn't leave. I had, I had to stay. I had to watch. I had to, it was weird. It was like, I need to just see it happen. I just need to see the casket being lowered all the way down into this hole. And I need to see, I need to see the, the dirt. Sorry. <laughs> took me a minute to th- think of the word dirt. I need to see the dirt actually cover the casket and, I don't know why, but I just needed it. It's really interesting. So when you actually pass through the grief event that you're afraid of, it's going to surprise you what comes up. There's no way that your brain could possibly anticipate how it's going to be when this grief event happens. So grief potential is almost kind of like a lie. It's not, it's not real. You won't know what it's going to be like. You know it's going to feel terrible. It will bring tears to your eyes if you think about it right? But it, it, it's a tiny, tiny microcosm of what it will actually feel like to go through the grief, that kinetic grief. And so when someone uses your grief potential against you, this is their way of using this thing that you're afraid of in order for them to get what they want in the moment. And that's just like what people do, you know? How's it going to feel when I die and you said this? Well, I've considered all of the things that I've said and done with regards to my mom over the last two years. And some of those things do feel terrible. And some of those things don't. Some of those things I'm really grateful for. And some of those things I used to feel terrible at the very beginning and I don't feel terrible anymore. Really fascinating stuff. So when the narcissist in your life uses this grief potential against you and you're like, yeah, I totally agree. I definitely don't want to feel that way. It's going to be awful. You're not considering the vast experience, the ups and downs, the changes in the way that you're going to be thinking that it's actually going to be. Now, this does not mean you get carte blanche 
you get my full permission to be a total jerk to the people you love. No, that's not what I'm saying. Don't coach yourself out of feeling bad about being a jerk, right? That's not what we're doing here. But if you're like me and you're trying your best to be the best person that you can be and to be kind to others while not sabotaging care for yourself, then this is what I'm talking about. It's saying, okay, this person has no idea about how it's going to feel when I lose this person. This person is using an acute moment in time to try to make me change my mind about this boundary or about this thing that I'm doing that is the right thing for me. And if you can get awareness of that, it's going to protect you from making choices you wish you wouldn't make or that making choices against what was best for you. So when it comes to living a life, a post-NARC life, if you will, (laughs) where you design who it is you want to be, the life that you want to have, and how you want to feel. It's really important that you keep your brain out of fight or flight so that you can make the decisions that lead to that end that you are creating. So many times my clients come to me and they're like, I got to fix this situation. And instead of me launching immediately into, well, you should say this and you should do this. I say, what is it that you want to feel? How do you want to feel about this interaction? How do you want to feel about yourself after the interaction? What do you want your life to be like? We kind of, we, we set the vision first for what this experience, your design is for what you want it to be. And then when we get into that state, your brain has the ability to access things you normally wouldn't have been able to access. You can make decisions that are in line, that are in alignment with the person you want to be, how you want to feel, the life you want to live. And if you're in fight or flight because you are terrified of how it's going to feel when the person in front of you dies, you're not going to be able to access that work. You're going to be like, well, I'll just do whatever it takes. I'll just say what I've got to say so that everyone feels good. And I never have to worry about that grief in the future, (laughs) except you are going to feel that grief no matter what. Of course, you're going to feel that grief. You're going to beat yourself up. Well, if you're anything like me, maybe if you're not like me, but if you are anything like me, you're still going to beat yourself up for things that you thought you were saying (laughs) that were the quote right thing in the moment. Not because they were actually things that you were, you should regret, but because that's what brains do. When they're in heavy grief moments, they want, brains want to find a reason that this maybe could have been prevented. A brain wants to to retroactively solve your grief, even though it's impossible. At least my brain certainly did for a long, long time it did. And there was not a whole lot that I could have done to prevent that either. Maybe I could have, but I didn't. And that's okay too. And I did the work over the last two years to help manage that part of my brain. And that's just what my experience looked like. And it's okay. My experience looks like what it looks like. And your experience is going to look like what it looks like. We don't know. There's no way to possibly anticipate it. At least it wasn't possible for me. So we walk around this world. All, every single one of us on this planet walks around with a ton of grief potential because there are people in our lives and things in our lives that we love. We have grief potential because we have spouses or children, especially, 
or moms or dads or siblings that we love, people we care about, people we care about in our communities. We have grief potential because we live in a home. That home could go up in flames or something terrible could happen to it or a hurricane could destroy it. We have grief potential for so many of the things that we value in life. And that's not a bad thing. It's okay to have grief potential. That's literally just being human, right? You can't escape grief potential, even though grief potential is kind of not real. Grief grief potential does not accurately represent how it is truly going to feel when the time comes. But that doesn't matter. Just that's how human brains are. And you can manage your grief potential. You can be with yourself. You can ask yourself, yeah, that is going to be scary, isn't it? You know, you can love on yourself when you're feeling really scared and your brain goes all the way there. It's like, yeah, I know it's going to be, it's probably going to be terrible and it it feels awful. Or you can manage it by saying, nope, not going to go there. I love you brain, but we don't need to go there because it's not going to prevent us. It's not going to save us any grief. It's not going to make it any easier. So I'm just going to live in the now and be grateful for what I have for as long as I have it, right? You can do it that way. That's fine too. But, but grief potential is not a problem. It just is used sometimes as a tool against you to do the things you don't necessarily want to do or aren't in line with who you're trying to become and the healthy relationships you're trying to build. And you want to be just, just aware of it so that you can manage it a little better if you want to in those moments. And you can say, I understand that one day I am going to lose you mom or dad or sibling. That's possible but it's very important for me to have this limit. I still, I'm still not going to tolerate you yelling at me (laughs) or, you know, we, you can't come visit if you have this, this, and this that provides a potential danger to my children, right? Things like that, whatever your limits are. And, uh, so that's what I wanted to talk to you about today. I hope that this has been really helpful And it's kind of opened your insights a little bit so that you can kind of go through life and be a little bit firmer, a little bit more confident in going out and setting those boundaries. And if you want my help in creating boundaries, creating healthy relationships, figuring all this out, navigating the narcissist in your life, shoot me a text or I guess shoot me an email. (laughs) I don't know why I said text. Shoot me an email, Laura at bythewaycoaching.com. I have private coaching options. I also have a group coaching option and I will be rolling out a certification here soon. So get on the email list if you want to learn more about that or just book a call and we'll chat about it. I love chatting with my people. So I hope you have an amazing day. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Bye.